You'll rue the day you cross the bride of Junkenstein. Because you're listening to Know the Lore, Overwatch. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the final episode of Know the Lore Overwatch. I am your lore master, Spartacris, and boy, oh boy, has it been a wild ride over the last several years of doing this show. There were times we had tons of lore to sift through, and then there were months of nothing, and then like a couple years of nothing. And now, we're here, and we've gotten some new stuff, but alas, all things must come to an end eventually. There are multiple reasons for closing the book on this show, and I've mentioned many of them in preceding episodes, so I won't beat that dead horse again at this point. Stay tuned. What I will do right now, though, is let you know that this episode may be a bit of a surprise, because despite the title, this will be a little bit more of a hodgepodge and deviate a bit from the normal. You'll see what I mean when we get there. But first, let's start off with the titular story which I've selected, which is the lore that follows up from the revenge of Dr. Junkenstein. This is the Wrath of the Bride. And what we're going to do here is I will kind of just explain the story that takes place as players would play through it and throw in some key tidbits there for those who did not play it or skip the dialogue and really just wanted to farm those achievements. So, the story starts out featuring four characters an outlaw on the hunt for wealth and treasure, a butcher who dealt in death and cadavers, a fortune teller forever haunted by the future, and a sleuth who faced more questions than answers. It's Ash, Junker Queen, Kiriko, and Sojourn for those who didn't pick up on that. So, in the Dr. Junkenstein tale, the mad doctor who was banished from the castle had returned, taken the Lord of the Castle captive, and brought his allies to secure his position. As we covered all of that in the episode all about Dr. Junkenstein, a group of four heroes managed to slay his allies and Dr. Junkenstein himself, thus freeing the Lord of the Castle. However, in this tale, someone new has repeated Dr. Junkenstein's previous actions and taken control of the castle, kidnapped the Lord, and the surrounding village is now swarming with Zomniks. And that's where the four heroes come in individually fighting through the Zomniks looking for other survivors. They eventually gather at a tavern, as all good fantasy stories begin, where they hear an ominous message come over an old radio that the castle has fallen. Believing Dr. Junkenstein to somehow still be alive and behind it all, they decide to breach the castle and put a stop to him once more. As they first attempt to breach the ramparts of the castle, they encounter their first of many threats aside from the Zomniks, the Banshee. And after dealing with her, they hear the voice of their true nemesis for the first time. And it isn't Dr. Junkenstein as they expected. Rather, it's a female voice instead. As they pass through the ramparts, the group is attacked by several large gargoyle statues come to life. And it's after defeating them that the voice reveals itself to be a grieving widow, a.k.a. the Bride of Junkenstein which was basically a handcrafted lover created from various body parts and brought to life by Junkenstein's mad science, just like his creature from the original story. The heroes find their route blocked and attempt to take a shortcut within the ramparts. After pulling a few levers looking for a secret passage, their consciousness is transported into a shared nightmare full of 
several floating, crudely stitched together marionettes attempting to kill them. Of course. Once they're all defeated, the heroes wake up, pass through the correct hidden door, and find themselves at the bridge leading to the castle, where they are assaulted once more by more gargoyles and the resurrected dragon-like summoner, one of Junkenstein's former allies. Once all of those are defeated, the outlaw uses dynamite to blow open the castle doors where they are met by an unkillable ghost. You know, I, I don't think you can really kill a ghost. Has anyone tried? Anyways, the unkillable ghost will haunt them for the rest of their journey in an attempt to drain their life force. And upon making their way through the castle, they find themselves in a large room where the lord of the castle cries out for help, strapped to an operating table when the bride makes her appearance. Aided by her Zomnix as well as the ghost, the bride will attempt to carry out her plans to turn the lord of the castle into a monster, all the while destroying the heroes. In the end, per the story's sake, the four heroes stop the bride, which banishes the ghost, saving the lord, and all is well. For now. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, so there you have it. The Wrath of the Bride. And now, as promised, the rest of the episode will continue. And this is not going to be normal, as this is going to delve way behind the scenes and shed a lot of light on many of the reasons I am deciding to walk away from continuing this podcast after finishing out what I had originally planned. And it begins with Cole Cassidy. If any of you play the game and don't follow what has been happening behind the scenes, you're probably wondering, why the heck did they change Jesse McCree's name and why is it Cole Cassidy? And some of you that do know why might be interested to know how that fits into the lore. Well, originally, I really wanted the last episode to be a deeper dive on Cassidy with that in mind. But as I snooped and snooped and snooped, there really just isn't a lot there, even for as big of a change as, you know, changing a character's entire name. So here it is. In the lore, he was born Cole Cassidy, but started going by the name Jesse McCree for unknown reasons in his teenage years. Yeah, that's the honest to God answer we got. I mean, he started getting into trouble with the law around that time, so you can jump to the conclusion in your head that he wasn't entirely proud of the things he did, so he adopted a new name. But that would be speculation and not the actual lore. For the Switch back pre-Overwatch 2, it's as simple as he wanted a fresh start. He did his stint as an outlaw and for Blackwatch and then as a bounty hunter for hire, and he grew tired of it. With Overwatch 2, he's basically kind of the de facto leader of the new group, so he decided to revert back to his real name and leave the past behind. That's it. That is all the lore behind the name Cole Cassidy. That's all. So now let's talk about the real reason for the name changes as we get into the true lore of what's been happening with Blizzard Activision, the company that created Overwatch and Diablo and World of Warcraft and Starcraft and Hearthstone and Heroes of the Storm, and all those other things that, you know, you're probably familiar with. And there will be a little bit of a build-up first, just like in all of the other episodes. So let me set the stage, because in hindsight, there were warning signs. And believe it or not, the first warning sign was the original announcement of Overwatch itself back in BlizzCon of 2014. Now, the original announcement came from Chris Metzen. And at some point during the show, he casually mentioned, and I'm paraphrasing here because I could not find the original clip nor the transcript, but I was watching this live and it stuck with me as something interesting. 
Chris Metzen said that he wanted a game with female characters that weren't dressed like they were in the other Blizzard games like World of Warcraft and Diablo, which are pretty well known for doing the whole scantily clad female armor set thing found in a lot of fantasy settings. He cited his daughter as a reason for this statement and that Overwatch could be this game. It was a game of of hope and equality and all the good stuff. He was excited about it. Chris Metzen also introduced two other large influencers on Overwatch at that time, Michael Chu, the senior designer for Lore and Story, and Jeff Kaplan, lead game designer and director. However, right around the time Overwatch officially launched two years later, Metzen left the company. Not all the details are clear on why he did it, but we do know that he was suffering from major panic attacks at the time. Four years into the game in 2020, the lead lore and story designer, Michael Chu, also departs, and this is also around the time Blizzard would have started working on Overwatch 2. A year later, in 2021, Jeff Kaplan, the most vocal and present of the entire team, leaves as well. And then just a few months later after Kaplan leaves, Blizzard Activision is sued by the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing after what was described as a two-year investigation, meaning the investigation would have started around 2019 before Jeff Kaplan and Michael Chu left. The investigation cited allegations of harassment, discrimination, and a toxic workplace culture. The investigation was quickly addressed internally at Blizzard by executives like J. Allen Brack, who gave off the impression that they were concerned and had no knowledge of any incidents, and Fran Townsend, whose memo depicted it all as false allegations and smear campaigns. However, it was later revealed that the memo was not written by Townsend, but actually by Blizzard Activision CEO Bobby Kotick, which deepens the story dramatically. Let me tell you a bit about Bobby Kotick. Bobby Kotick is a big name in the gaming industry and not necessarily a good one. He's someone with deep pockets and a habit for swooping in and buying game companies at their lowest. Now, to be fair, he has turned many fledgling studios into big money makers, but the cost of doing so tends to be usually at the sake of fun. He has been known for using the actual phrase, take the fun out of game development. His words, not mine. What he means by this is he wants his companies to take a streamlined approach, cut costs and jobs where they don't appear to be needed, and monetize whatever can be monetized in-game. So, if you're dismayed at the new Battle Pass system for Overwatch 2, this is following Bobby Kotick's model verbatim. Make more money. After the lawsuit and allegations were made public, many Blizzard Activation employees, especially women, came forward with horror stories about how they had been treated or about how they were forced out of their positions for their personal safety, many of them citing allegations of sexual harassment and worse at the hands of Blizzard Activation leadership and executives. Many of these executives were known to binge drink on the job and do what they called cubicle crawls, where these men would visit and hit on many of the women at their desks during work hours. And then there's the infamous and disgusting Cosby Suite. During BlizzCon 2013, a hotel room was utilized by several Blizzard Activision execs, including Alex Afrajabi, Dave Kosak, Corey Stockton, Greg Street, and President J. Allen Brack, you know, the one who seemed so surprised anything bad was happening and was so taken aback by the investigation. Well, they and others established the Cosby Suite in this hotel room that they named after former comedian Bill Cosby, 
who had recently been on trial after women had been coming forward accusing him of using date rape drugs on them, sexually assaulting them, and more. There's even a photo of all of them in this room posing with a huge portrait of Bill Cosby. Multiple photos. Among with them posing with, you know, various substances. And women. A group chat was also leaked from the execs using the hotel room that is pretty explicit and contains plans to gather women and bring them up to the suite. Another of the folks in the photo and the chat was, take a guess, Jesse McCree. Obviously, this wasn't the cowboy from Overwatch who is not a real person, but Jesse McCree was another lead game designer whom the character was named after. So, hence, the name change. Many allegations came out from that specific night at the Cosby Suite and plenty of other incidents. And after some digging by the Wall Street Journal, they reported that Bobby Kotick has known about all of the egregious misconduct all along and likely is the reason it took so long for all of it to come to light. And as no surprise, once disgusting human trash Jeffrey Epstein was taken down, as well as Gazane Maxwell, guess whose name was among some of old Epstein's contacts? Yeah. So I don't believe that Bobby Connick had any problem with what was happening at his company. As this went on, Blizzard Activision just kept on eating itself alive as more lawsuits were filed, vast amounts of employees at all levels, especially higher levels, fled the company, and with all the dirty laundry out in the open, most of the problematic executives had to be fired to save face. However, it still wasn't enough. Employees staged walkouts and demanded more action, including the removal of CEO Bobby Kotick, who refused, and still refuses, to leave the company. Eventually, Microsoft offers to purchase Blizzard Activision, and in doing so, Bobby Kotick would be forced to leave the company, although with the severance package of $300 million. As it stands now, Blizzard Activision has put some steps in place, like several third-party companies doing committees, some of the employees are working on unionizing, although that's not going super smoothly, and the FTC has currently blocked Microsoft from acquiring Blizzard Activision which means if it doesn't get unblocked, Kotick may be here to stay. But Chris Metzen has recently returned to the company, though his focus right now is on World of Warcraft rather than Overwatch. During all the original allegations, he put out a statement apologizing for contributing to the culture of Blizzard Activision and not being part of the solution. I don't know how involved he ever was, but his name hasn't really come up in any of the allegations, nor has Michael Chu or Jeff Kaplan. However, if I had to take guesses, and this part right now, this is purely speculative. I think Metzen was tired of the place and his part in it, and he left, especially becoming a new father along with the comments he made at BlizzCon 2014. Jeff Kaplan later did say that he did his best to protect the Overwatch team from all the politics and quote-unquote BS of Blizzard Activision for several years, but didn't really elaborate more. This sounds like they were aware of what was happening and left because of it, especially Jeff Kaplan here. It sounds like he was aware of all the things that were happening, and he was trying to keep the Overwatch team from being involved or being affected by it. So I believe folks like Michael Chu and Jeff saw the writing on the wall and the struggle between what Kotick demanded for Overwatch 2, which was make more money, and the demand being put on the Overwatch development team and all of the mismanagement going on amidst all these investigations. And I think that's what caused Chu and then Jeff to walk away. 
especially knowing about all the horrible things that are about to come to light. Again, pure speculation, so don't take those parts verbatim. However, it leads me to the end of this episode and the end of the podcast. I struggled for a long time coming back to this podcast because of the whole, how do you separate the artist from the art idea? A lot of folks are having that debate lately with the whole Hogwarts legacy thing and J.K. Rowling. And I'm not here to shame you either way. Play the games or don't. It doesn't make you a good person or a bad person. But this podcast started as a celebration of a game I loved because it brought joy and hope and a fun atmosphere. However, for me personally, it's been tainted by everything that's happened behind the scenes, as well as the Overwatch 2 game. The new system is just not rewarding as a player, and I find myself occasionally playing because a few matches can be fun here and there, but there's just no drive anymore with how the system functions. There's no need to keep at it, especially competitive. It's become a cash cow that's wearing Bobby Connick's ideals on its sleeve, where money is more important than the fun. And I started this to celebrate the fun. So, with all that said, we're at an end. There's other creators out there that make great content around Overwatch, so I want to recommend them for all of you that are still hoping to find more. My personal favorite is Stylosa on YouTube, S-T-Y-L-O-S-A. Please look him up. Hame is great for lore, H-A-M-M-E-H. Look him up too. Um, Both of them will likely continue for some time. I'll still be playing the game here and there. I'm just going to be playing much more casually than the old days of Overwatch. And I do hope the best for the future of the game, for the future of the employees, and for all of you. And I want to thank you for taking this trip with me through all the good and the bad the world of Overwatch has to offer. So, take care of yourselves. And remember, the world could always use more heroes. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, like, subscribe, comment, or share this episode, as every little bit you do helps the show and helps me out tremendously. Know the Lore is recorded and produced by NerdSloth. More episodes can be found at nerdsloth.com along with our other shows. You can find us on most social media platforms at NerdslothHQ. Music heard during the show is the Overwatch Victory theme remixed by DJ Afixia. Go to afixia.com to hear more. Presented by NerdSloth, a place for lazy nerds. If you like what you heard, consider donating at patreon.com slash nerdsloth so we can continue bringing you quality shows. Be sure to also leave us a review and share your favorite episodes and clips on social media. If you're looking for more content, visit us at nerdsloth.com.